Hello, my name is Stanley Bill. You're listening to Notes from Poland. This week, I continue my brief history of Poland with part four on the Golden Age and the beginnings of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. I'll discuss the last kings of the Jagiellonian dynasty, the culture of religious toleration, and the Polish Renaissance. Notesfrompoland.com is the leading English-language source of news, insight, and analysis on Poland. In this podcast, I look at the country from all angles, politics, history, culture, and society. You can get more news and the deeper stories about Poland at notesfrompoland.com. The 16th century is often described as the Golden Age in Polish history. For this title, perhaps only the current post-1989 period of stability and prosperity can compete. Though these two manifestations of Poland are so different from each other as to be almost incomparable. The 16th century saw the final formation of the composite Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and its expansion to almost its greatest geographical extent, many times the size of present-day Poland with its more westerly position and less diverse population. It was a period of security as the Commonwealth benefited from the relative weakness of its main rivals. Perhaps this dimension is similar today. The threat of the Teutonic Order declined and disappeared. The capacity of Muscovy to project power to its west was only just beginning to develop. At the same time, the culture of toleration that had developed in the diverse Polish-Lithuanian Union spared it the worst excesses of the religious violence that shook other European countries in the wake of the Reformation. Instead, religious and cultural diversity were among the drivers of an artistic and intellectual blooming as Polish culture participated in the European Renaissance. While much of this culture was imitative or simply borrowed, like the new buildings designed by Italian architects in Kraków and other cities, the period also saw original Polish contributions in astronomy, religious thought and literature. Finally, the Golden Age saw the completion of the Golden Freedom, the series of rights and privileges that gave the Schlachta, or nobility, autonomy and even a dominant position in Poland and Lithuania. In this episode, I'll discuss the reign of the last two Jagiellonian kings, the nature of religious tolerance and conflict in the Commonwealth, the great achievements of the Polish Renaissance, and the beginning of the free royal elections. In 1505, the passing of the Nihil Novi Act reinforced the power of the Schlachta and the institution of the same, the Parliament. The Schlachta won freedom from royal authority, assuring its own prosperity through the right to control the laws that regulated trade and taxation. This meant worsening conditions for the peasants, from whom more labour was to be extracted as landowners sought to meet the demand of Western markets for raw materials like grain and timber. The king still retained significant power as the supreme executive authority, with unchallenged dominion over the royal cities, the Jewish communities, 
and peasants on the large royal estates. Yet the business of the state, and especially war, took money, and the king could not obtain the necessary funds without consent for taxation from the same. This meant an ongoing negotiation between king and parliament, with the monarch sometimes appealing to the masses of poorer schlachter against the aristocratic class of powerful magnates. In 1506, a new Jagiellonian king came to the throne, Zygmunt, or Sigismund I, later known as the Old. His reign, which lasted until his death in 1548, would see the blossoming of the Polish Renaissance and a strengthening of the international position of the Union. After his death, his son, Zygmunt II, August, would take his place as the last monarch of the Jagiellonian dynasty remaining on the throne until 1572. In fact, the younger Zygmunt had originally been crowned as king at the age of nine in 1529, with the approval of the same, and formally shared the throne with his father. In large part, the Golden Age coincides with the reign of this father and son. The image of the older Zygmunt in Polish history is not entirely positive. He has often been presented as a weak king in old age, supposedly falling victim to the Machiavellian schemes of his second wife, the Italian Bona Sforza of Milan. And yet the achievements of his reign are significant. Importantly, he managed to incorporate the Duchy of Mazovia, including the city of Warsaw, back into the Polish crown in 1526. Before then, Mazovia had remained an independent fiefdom and a distinct region, dominated by an often impoverished nobility who sometimes even spoke a separate dialect of Polish. In the previous century, as we saw in the last episode, the Polish crown had absorbed large parts of the state of the Teutonic Knights, including the port of Gdańsk. The rest of the Teutonic state centred on Königsberg, today's Russian Kaliningrad, became a fiefdom of the crown. During the reign of Zygmunt I, the Grand Master of the Order, Albert of Prussia, began to chafe against Polish rule, eventually starting a war. The result was not entirely conclusive, but the Teutonic Order's power was soon all but destroyed. After corresponding with Martin Luther, Albert converted to Lutheran Protestantism, secularised the order, and then performed the so-called Prussian homage on his knees before the Polish king on the main square in Kraków. The new Duchy of Prussia would become the first Protestant state in Europe and would remain a fief of the Polish crown until the middle of the 17th century. Perhaps most importantly, Zygmunt I is associated with the cultural flowering of the Polish Renaissance, largely inspired by Italian examples. Indeed, Queen Bona played an important role in this process. Her influence extended from high culture to cuisine. A range of vegetables now common in Polish cooking were supposedly introduced by the Queen, along with the associated vocabulary. One theory even claims that the relatively late Polish word for woman, kobieta, was introduced by Bona from a Tuscan-Italian expression konbita, suggesting a person partial to touch or to hugging. Bonner also had a deadly reputation for political intrigue, 
with an alleged penchant for poison. Persistent rumours said she had orchestrated the deaths of the last members of the Mazovian dynasty, and even of her son Zygmunt II's young wife, Barbara Radziwiłł, after which the bereft king reputedly dressed in black for the rest of his life. Irrespective of the truth of these tales, Bona was certainly a major political player, a reformer and a landowner in her own right, in both the Polish kingdom and the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. Some of her ill-starred reputation may have sprung simply from this unusual activeness as a queen in politics, and from resulting masculine fears of a powerful woman. Bona and her husband were also patrons of some of the best-known buildings of the time, the pearls of the Polish Renaissance, all designed by Italian architects. Two of the most exquisite examples can be visited on the Wawel Hill in Kraków today, the arcaded internal courtyard of Wawel Castle and the Zygmunt Chapel. The three-layered arcades of the courtyard are typical of Italian Renaissance design, but they also include some unique features. In particular, the vertiginous effect created by steeply sloped roofs and the upper layer of columns, which very unusually are much taller than those beneath them. The nearby Zygmunt Chapel, attached to one side of Wawel Cathedral, is crowned with a characteristic Renaissance dome, a symbol of perfection, covered in gold-plated scales which catch the sunlight on bright days. Both Zygmunt I and II were buried in the chapel. During the reign of the younger Zygmunt, after his father's death, the recurring question of the nature of the Polish-Lithuanian Union became increasingly urgent, especially as the heirless king's health began to fail in the 1560s. Until that time, the joining of the two realms had been a personal union under the hereditary Jagiellonian monarch, who from the middle of the 15th century had simultaneously held the two positions of Grand Duke of Lithuania and King of Poland. The two states retained separate laws, armies, parliaments and traditions. The Grand Duchy remained a combination of Lithuanian Catholic regions and the vast Orthodox Ruthenian lands to the south and east. Its legal and court business was conducted mostly in Ruthenian, though Polish was fast becoming the dominant language, especially among the powerful Lithuanian lords. The last Grand Duke able to speak Lithuanian at all had been Kazimierz IV Jagiellonczyk, who died in 1492. Since the Union of Krewo and the crowning of the Lithuanian Jogaila as King of Poland back in 1385, the Polish and Lithuanian nobles had never reached a final agreement on the precise nature of the Union, which remained open to debate. The Poles often argued that the Grand Duchy had been legally incorporated into the Polish Kingdom, while the Lithuanians insisted on equality and autonomy under the same ruler. Multiple attempts were made to clarify the relationship in later documents and proposals, all ultimately failed or subsequently undermined. Under Zygmunt II, August, after several further failed attempts, the key moment would finally arrive with the Union of Lublin of 1569. At this time, the Lithuanians were under pressure from a string of wars with Muscovy in the northern Baltic region, in which they desperately needed Polish support. 
the king arranged a series of meetings of the two parliaments from which the Lithuanians soon absconded. In fury, Zygmunt made the bold move of annexing the Ruthenian provinces of the Grand Duchy, that is, most of present-day Ukraine, to the Polish kingdom, demanding that the nobles of these regions declare their loyalty to him. After some prevarication, several of the great Ruthenian lords agreed, deciding that their economic interests could best be served in the Polish kingdom. The minor nobles of these regions soon followed, and many of the Lithuanian lords were forced to do the same to protect their Ruthenian properties. This entirely new predicament brought the Lithuanians back to negotiate a settlement. The Union of Lublin was signed on the 1st of July, 1569, bringing into existence the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, Rzeczpospolita Oboiga Narodów, the Commonwealth or the Republic of the two nations, a single state composed of two parts. In this simultaneous sense of unity and plurality, a kind of compromise had been reached. The Poles won new rights to own property in the Grand Duchy and a singular state with one currency and one parliament. They also acquired the massive territory of the Ruthenian lands. The Lithuanians, on the other hand, had preserved some of their separate identity. The office of the Grand Duke would be retained, along with a distinct legal system and various other state positions. The text of the Union refers to reciprocal, fraternal love, and states, and I quote, that the Kingdom of Poland and the Grand Duchy of Lithuania are already one inseparable and undifferentiated body, and hence an undifferentiated and single shared commonwealth of two states and nations has risen up and joined together as one people. The representatives of these two states and nations processed ceremonially, now as one people of a single commonwealth, to Lublin's Church of St. Stanisław, where they sang the Te Deum Laudamus hymn of thanksgiving together. King Zygmunt August supposedly rode his horse through driving rain from Lublin Castle to join them. The Union of Lublin created a unique composite state, but it also decisively shifted the balance of power to the Kingdom of Poland. The agreement was a defeat for the Lithuanian camp, intent on maintaining the fully separate identity of the Grand Duchy. The process of Polonization of Catholic Lithuanian nobles would accelerate as they began to participate in the shared institutions of the new state. By the end of the 16th century, few of them would speak Lithuanian at all. The Polish kingdom emerged with vast territorial gains, but the Poles had still made some concessions, and the Commonwealth was born, at least rhetorically, under the sign of fraternity and unity in diversity. The 16th century Commonwealth was multinational, multicultural, and multiconfessional. By some estimates, around 40% of the state's population were ethnic Poles, most of them Catholic. Around 20% were East Slavic Ruthenians, most of them Eastern Orthodox. Approximately 15% were Lithuanians, also mostly Catholic. About 10% were German, many of them Protestant by the middle of the century, and around 5% were Jewish. 
the enormous eastern territories were sparsely populated and mostly orthodox. The more crowded Polish heartland to the west was mostly Catholic. The northern areas, including Royal Prussia and parts of Lithuania, became Lutheran and Calvinist. And Jewish communities were dotted around the whole country in towns and smaller rural settlements, the shtetls. There were also smaller Muslim Tatar populations in the Grand Duchy of Lithuania and Armenian Christians in the south and east, for instance in Lvov, today's Lviv in Ukraine, where you can still visit the stunning Armenian cathedral today. The Shlachta represented around 10% of the population, including Poles, Lithuanians, Ruthenians and Prussians with full political rights. The towns accounted for around 20% with a narrower set of rights, but the vast majority of the population, around 70%, were the peasants, who toiled under worsening conditions with their very limited rights being steadily eroded by the Schlachter, often rooting them to the land with ever greater requirements of labour for their lords. In this sense, the Commonwealth was not at all a nascent democracy, as some advocates have described it, though the extent of the exploitation is debated by contemporary scholars. By the standards of the time, the Commonwealth was a relatively tolerant place. Catholicism remained dominant. From 1573, the king by law had to be a Catholic. Catholic bishops also had permanent seats in the Senate. But Orthodox Ruthenians had political rights and power. Jews lived in relative safety under the protection of the king. With the onset of the Protestant Reformation, which had a brief but powerful effect in Poland and Lithuania, the Commonwealth did not see the mass religious violence that plagued other parts of Europe. Many nobles converted to Protestantism in the middle of the 16th century, though these conversions largely did not extend to the peasantry and most eventually converted back to Catholicism. The two Zygmunts contributed to the climate of tolerance. When asked to take a firmer position on religious issues, Zygmunt II famously declared, I am not the king of your consciences. In 1557, he issued a toleration license for the Lutheran cities of royal Prussia. In 1563 and 68, he finally gave the Orthodox nobles of the Eastern lands equal political rights to Catholic nobles, lifting previous restrictions on the holding of certain public offices. In 1573, a document known as the Warsaw Confederation formally extended a kind of religious freedom to the Schlachter, as the nobles pledged to keep religious peace between them and to preserve their rights to impose their own religious convictions on their servants and subjects. The Commonwealth became something of a haven for religious minorities, famous for its heretical sects, including the so-called Polish Brethren, Unitarians, who rejected the Catholic doctrine of the Trinity. This attitude of toleration was rooted both in the long tradition of the Polish kingdom, with its enshrined rights for the nobility, and in the broader culture of Renaissance humanism, including the ideas of the Dutch thinker Erasmus, which had taken hold in Poland, strongly influencing the two Zygmunts. Impressive though this tolerance may be, it should not be over-idealised. The Commonwealth also saw religious violence, especially from the end of the 16th century. The heretical Polish brethren eventually faced persecution. In a famous case, 
Ivan Tishkevich, a Unitarian, was tortured and executed in public on the market square in Warsaw for blasphemy and heresy in 1611. He had refused to take an oath on a crucifix. Even earlier, in 1574, anti-Protestant riots had taken place in Kraków, where a Catholic mob, many of them students of the university, broke into and devastated a Protestant church, burning books and killing two evangelicals. However, even this event must be put in context. First of all, six of the rioters were later tried and then beheaded at Kraków Town Hall as the authorities cracked down on violation of the religious peace. More importantly, the scale of the violence was minor in comparison, for example, with what had happened only two years earlier in France, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, where thousands of Protestants had been killed by their Catholic countrymen. Indeed, these terrible events in Paris, and later across France, had partly inspired the 1573 Agreement of the Warsaw Confederation. The king and the schlachter were determined not to allow religious violence on this scale to tear apart their commonwealth. Though tensions simmered under the surface, they largely succeeded, at least for a time. Like other parts of Northern Europe, Poland effectively imported the Renaissance, with its revival of classical traditions and new faith in the capacity of human reason, from Italy. As we have seen, Italians designed the great architectural icons of Royal Kraków. The same goes for the planned city of Zamość, today located in southeastern Poland, founded in 1580 by Polish magnate Jan Zamoyski, but designed by Italian architect Bernardo Morando in accordance with the geometrical proportions of the ideal Renaissance town. The elegant forms of the tenement houses and arcades of its main square could have come straight from any number of Italian principalities. Indeed, this sense of the derivative nature of Polish culture in this period is difficult to escape. In the realm of ideas, Polish thinkers like Jan Waski and Andrzej Fritz-Modzewski enter into dialogue with some of the influential thinkers of the age, most prominently Erasmus, with his ethos of moderation and reason. Waski even purchased Erasmus's library, allowing the Dutch humanist to continue using it until his death. But Polish and Lithuanian ideas had only a limited reception in other parts of Europe. Fritz-Modzewski's political theories were read outside Poland in his own time. He was an advocate of a mixed constitution, taken from Aristotle and Cicero, including monarchical, oligarchical and democratic elements, partly reflecting the institutions of the Commonwealth. However, his ideas did not make a lasting impression on European political thought. The notable exception in this regard is Nicholas Copernicus, born into a family of mixed German-Polish background in Toruń, Royal Prussia, in 1473, only seven years after the region had become part of the Kingdom of Poland. He probably spoke both German and Polish. He studied at the University of Kraków, which at the time was known across Europe for its school of mathematics and astrology. In his 1543 book, entitled On the Revolutions of the Heavenly Spheres, Copernicus developed an astronomical model 
that predicted the movements of the planets somewhat more accurately than the old Ptolemaic-Aristotelian system. Above all, his model was truly revolutionary in its removal of the Earth from the centre of the universe, replacing it with the Sun. Copernicus himself saw his work as an act of praise of the providential order of the created universe. Reflections on the rational organisation of the higher spheres led naturally to the contemplation of God. The 16th century also saw the spectacular development of literature in the Polish language, as the vernacular began to win the contest for supremacy with Latin. Initially, the Church had been reluctant to adopt Polish for liturgical texts. As a dead language, Latin was seen as an appropriately stable or even eternal medium for sacred subjects. By contrast, Polish as a living language, without a codified grammar, was seen as dynamic and chaotic, characterised by a constant flux of shifting meanings. The Reformation was crucial to changing this attitude. Its initiator, Martin Luther, emphasised the importance of vernacular languages and national churches to give individual believers more direct access to the Word of God. He himself translated the Bible into a dialect of German, triggering a wave of such translations across Europe, including in Poland. The many Protestant translations that ensued subsequently inspired a Catholic response, and the late 16th century saw a new emphasis on the Polish language in the Church, including the first edition of the now classic Wojek Bible, an approved Catholic translation into Polish. In fact, even before the Reformation, Polish had been steadily gaining traction among the clergy, especially in the cities, where Polish bishops were sometimes fighting what they saw as the excessive influence of German. In 1512, an important symbolic moment occurred when the Bishop of Kraków ceremonially greeted the Queen in Polish instead of in the customary Latin. The Reformation dramatically accelerated such processes throughout Europe, as did the invention of movable-type mechanical printing and the subsequent growth of national book markets, which functioned to standardise orthography and grammar, turning particular dialects into national literary languages. In the first half of the 16th century, the book markets of the Commonwealth expanded rapidly, as printed books, many of them religious in nature, multiplied in both Polish and Ruthenian. Secular literary works in Polish also began to proliferate. Protestant poets played an important early role in this process. The so-called father of Polish literature, Mikołaj Rey, who lived between 1505 and 1569, was a Protestant nobleman whose works included satirical attacks on the Catholic Church. He was a strong advocate of the Polish language, famously proclaiming, Let all nations and outsiders know that the Poles are not like geese, but have their own language. By this, Rey meant that Poles should not write in Latin, which was often referred to as the goose language perhaps due to its incomprehensible sound to the majority of the people, or because it was written using goose quills. Ray's poetry remains rough and rustic, often close in its form to the earlier medieval religious verse in Polish. The later figure of Jan Kochanowski, 
who lived between 1530 and 1584, embodies a quantum leap in Polish literature and in the possibilities of the Polish language. For the first time, Kochanowski used Polish for higher forms of poetry, previously only written in Latin, but without sacrificing the specific characteristics of the Polish language or artificially bending it to fit his own Latin and Italian models. He turned Polish very naturally into an elegant language of high culture and ideas. Like many Polish noblemen of his generation, Kochanowski had received much of his education abroad, mostly in Padua, and travelled widely. In some of his poetry, he expressed a typically humanist and Renaissance perspective reflecting the general optimism of his time. In one of his best-known works, A Song in Praise of Creation, Kochanowski captured this worldview, with just a hint of Protestant influence, in a direct address to the Creator God. Here are a few lines of the poem, translated by Jarek Zawadzki. What wishest thou for all these lavish gifts of thine? What for thy benefactions, boundless and divine? The church cannot contain thee. Thou art everywhere, down in the depths and seas, in the earth and in the air. It's worth hearing this first part of the poem in Polish, in the graceful, rhyming, thirteen-syllable lines whose regularity reflects the order and beauty of the created world they describe. Czego chcesz od nas, Panie, za Twe hojne dary? Czego za dobrodziejstwa, którym nie masz miary? Kościół Cię nie ogarnie, wszędę pełno Ciebie, i w otchłaniach, i w morzu, na ziemi, na niebie. In its very form, the poem reflects understandings of an ordered and rational universe with human beings at the centre of a world forged and infused by a good God. The poet's desire to praise the organisation of this universe almost seems to echo Copernicus's statement of his motivation for studying the orderly motion of the heavenly spheres, to praise God. But Kochanowski's most famous works were shaped by a tragic end to this sense of order and optimism in a cruel test of faith. In 1579, Kochanowski's two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Orshula, suddenly died, sending him into a period of grief that found expression in an extraordinary cycle of poems entitled The Laments, Trene. Here is Lament 8 in the translation of Stanisław Baranciak and Irish Nobel laureate Seamus Heaney, who convey its emotion with powerful immediacy. The void that fills my house is so immense. Now that my girl is gone, it baffles sense. We all are here, yet no one is, I feel. The flight of one small soul has tipped the scale. You talked for all of us. You sang for all. You played in every nook and cubbyhole. You never would have let your mother brood, nor father think too much for his own good. The house was carefree. Everybody laughed. You held us in your arms. Our hearts would lift. Now emptiness reigns here. 
the house is still. Nobody ever laughs, nor ever will. All your old haunts have turned to haunts of pain, and every heart is hankering in vain. In fact, the emotion of this poem is not as unfiltered as this somewhat modernised translation might suggest. The form of the poem is highly controlled, in this case using the same rhyming classical line as the earlier song of praise. Wielkiesz mi uczyniła pustki w domu moim, moja droga orszulo, tym zniknieniem swoim. This is controlled grief, not an unfettered stream or outpouring of emotion. And yet the confused pain of the speaker seems increasingly at odds with the ordered form. Across the whole cycle of laments, the poet experiments with various sophisticated verse forms. He invokes Christian theology and classical mythology, throwing everything a Renaissance man thinks he knows about the world at the terrible mystery of a young child's death. And yet there is a sense that the sheer weight of this event overwhelms the traditional forms of its expression. The regular verse structures sometimes crack, as if the poet's voice were wavering, as if the control of his emotion were breaking down. The very subject of the poems represents a break with convention. These are elegies, and according to the canons of Renaissance poetics, the elegy was one of the high forms, which demanded a serious subject. The death of a mere young girl would not have passed this test of gravitas. The deaths of children were a regular occurrence in the Europe of the time, experienced by most families. Elegy was above all for great men, kings, soldiers, and statesmen. Kohanovsky shatters these conventions, while still preserving the elevated language of the Renaissance forms to hallow the memory of his little girl in poems that are undoubtedly among the greatest achievements of European poetry of any era. The laments are a towering yet intimate monument of the Polish Renaissance, a highly original work using all the resources of the Polish language to test the limits of the dominant worldview of the time and to raise to high seriousness the fate of the smallest human individual. In 1572, King Zygmunt II, a figure more traditionally deserving of an elegy, died without an heir, bringing the Jagiellonian dynasty to an end. A subsequent two periods of kingless interregnum up to 1576 were a time of great instability and potential insecurity for the newly formed Commonwealth, while also representing perhaps the greatest triumph of its consensual political system. Instead of falling into conflict or even civil war, the diverse Polish, Lithuanian, Ruthenian and Prussian Schlachter came together through the institution of their same to devise a system of free royal elections. The nobles voted for their king from a list of candidates. In 1573, they chose Henry of France, who was crowned in Kraków in 1574. But Henry took a dislike to the Polish climate and, it appears, to Polish culture, 
and when his brother King Charles IX died in France, opening the possibility that he could take the French crown, he left Poland and returned to his homeland. On his departure from Kraków, one of the members of Henry's French entourage, a poet named Philippe de Porte, wrote a biting satirical poem entitled Adieu à la Pologne, attacking Poland and its people. He describes a benighted land of ice and snow, filled with poverty, uncivil customs, nasty cities, and a barbaric, drunken, and arrogant people. The poem marks an early example of apparent Western contempt for Eastern Europe as a place of barbarism, as Europe's own uncivilized other. In response, a Polish poet, none other than Jan Kochanowski himself, wrote a very civilized retort in Latin, a poem entitled Gallo Crocitanti, To the Crowing Cock or To the Crowing Gaul. In it, he mocks the French gentlemen, telling them that they should indeed run away from Poland and never come back. He makes fun of their fear of ice and cold and insists that Poles are most hospitable to those who are not tyrants. He concedes that Polish culture may be less refined in certain superficial respects, but insists that the ungracious French guests are the true barbarians. In both the sophisticated form of the poem and its often witty turn of phrase, Kochanowski asserts the place of Poland-Lithuania at the European cultural table. When it became apparent that the French Henry would not return to Poland, the same again took control, declaring the throne vacant and calling another election. This time, the nobles chose the Hungarian prince, Stefan Batori, as their king. He was crowned in 1576. One of the unsuccessful candidates in this free election was Ivan IV, the Terrible, Grand Prince of Muscovy, and the first Tsar of Russia. The year after Batori became king, he launched a campaign in the Baltic regions of today's Latvia and Estonia to regain lands that the Muscovites had previously taken from Lithuania. Batori defeated Ivan's armies in battle and forced the Tsar to give up these lands in a truce of 1582. Later, in 1605, Polish-Lithuanian forces would invade Russia itself, even storming the Kremlin in Moscow. But these successes would be short-lived, and the tide would soon turn against the Commonwealth in the East. I'll discuss the beginnings of the Commonwealth's long decline in the 17th century with a particular focus on Ukraine in the next episode of A Brief History of Poland. I'm Stanley Bill. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.